0: Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I am an Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. you want to redo that? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I am an Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center.
1: And I'm Ryan Shields, an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and here we are for our fourth and final episode summarizing the 29th Annual European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, also known as ECBID. Aaron, it's been a grind to get here. We've done three great episodes. Are you ready to wrap this up in the fourth and final episode? I'm
0: so ready, Ryan, and really excited to kind of bring this home. In this fourth episode, we're going to rapid fire go through posters and oral presentations that related to microbiology, stewardship, and then we close out with new and pipeline antimicrobials. We ended our last podcast with the discussion of UCAST and their microbiology updates and how they're really reevaluating how they look at clinical breakpoints, and then report those out to clinicians. So redoing the definitions of what S, I, and R are.
1: Yeah, the paradigm's really shifting, isn't it, Aaron? As we start to understand more about PKPD, we understand maybe how poorly these old definitions of S, I, and R were translated to patients. So this idea that everything really is exposure-dependent is really important. It also reminds me of how important it is then as ID clinical pharmacists that we're working with our microbiology labs. And I think this idea of microbiology stewardship or diagnostic stewardship is really becoming quite popular. And as you noted in our show notes here, that uh, when you just search for microbiology and stewardship on the ECMID website, you can find over 140 presentations just on this topic. And I think this was also a big theme at ECMID and has been for every ID meeting in the last couple years of rapid diagnostics, diagnostic stewardship, how can ID clinical pharmacists work with their lab? So I wanna transition now to talk a little bit about some of the rapid diagnostic findings at ECMID that were important. And I'm just gonna focus this on kind of three different assays that that were presented. Of course, this is just, again, uh, a small piece of all the data that was presented. But the first one I wanna talk about is uh, T2 Canada. T2 biosystems is a system in which we can do direct from whole blood sampling, so it's unlike kind of these post-blood culture tests that we're used to, but direct from whole blood sampling, and the T2 Canada panel has been on the market for a few years now, um, something we use here at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. But there was a study presented, it was presented as an oral abstract, it's oral abstract number 0046, and the title is Accuracy of T2 Canada in Invasive Candidiasis Clinical Trial. So I said, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to see a clinical trial in T2 Canada. Um, but what this study was, it was 54 patients were tested and 32 of which had canidemia. And essentially, they looked at the correlation of blood culture results in T2 Canada. And what they found, and I think something that is, resembles our clinical experience as well, is that there was higher rates of discordance between the, the blood culture result that grew Canada and the T2 result that should identify Canada, but particularly when the blood culture was drawn through a central venous catheter or a central line, in fact, the correlation between T2 Canada and blood cultures was quite high if both both um, both specimens were collected peripherally, but much lower through a central line. Now they said in the study that both the blood culture and T2 Canada were collected on the same day, but I think that's also something that we've noted in our experience: is the timing of blood culture and T2 Canada is very important. We know Canada translocates from the, from the gastrointestinal tract uh, all the time, and perhaps the timing of when you draw your blood culture and the T2 Canada sample is very important. And so, I think what this study shows us is not only is there some miscorrelation with where you draw the sample, but I think the timing is important too. If you want to correlate blood culture results with T2 Canada, you should probably try to draw both of these assays at the same time. Now, the other really important part about this study, which I think speaks to the power of T2 Canada, is not only do you get a result back with T2 Canada in f- as little as four hours compared to several days waiting for a blood culture to incubate, but another kind of important hidden gem in this study is that they were able to get T2 Canada specimens before blood cultures. And in fact, they found in 71% of their T2 positive patients, they had a T2 positive result up to two days prior to the blood culture even being drawn. So perhaps T2 Canada then is this biomarker where we can identify the disease even before a blood culture is drawn. So short, not only shortening that window to time to effective therapy, but maybe earlier recognition of invasive candidiasis, which is something that we know is associated with improved patient outcomes. I'm gonna move on now to an, another kind of type of rapid diagnostic test, and that's the accelerate phenosystem, which is a rapid phenotypic test. This is oral poster number 0256, and the title is is the juice worth the squeeze? Rapid identification and antimicrobial susceptibility testing using the Accelerate Pheno system. Um, so we decided that this would be a title that Monica Mahoney would like because it's clever and creative uh, and I think kind of speaks to the power of Accelerate Pheno. Um, is this worth all the all the hype? Can you get rapid phenotype tests and can you do something with them? So this is a study done in Rhode Island by Kim Chapin, uh, who I know personally is in, directs the microbiology lab there. She's a wonderful a microbiology lab director who really understands this test. And what she did in this study, is she took 100 consecutive blood cultures that grew gram-negative rods, or at least gram-negative rods were identified on the gram stain, and she compared the Accelerate Pheno system, which the microbiology text loaded, compared to standard of care. And in this study, the standard of care was Vitec uh, for susceptibility and MALDI-TOF for identification. And not surprisingly, you get much quicker results and a quicker turnaround time with Accelerate Pheno. Um, but what was important is that only 76% of these isolates gave an actionable result based on the ID and sensitivity of the test. So 76 out of 100 specimens would have resulted in an actionable result. And of those, um, they they forecasted that they could deescalate antibiotics in 79% of their patients. So I think a question that comes up from this study is, well, is 76% a good yield on this test, right? If we're gonna test 100 patients and maybe a quarter of them we can't use the results, is that a good yield? And I think there's a few things to to consider in that, and and one of which in this study, 20% of their specimens were polymicrobial. We know that this is gonna be a challenge for any rapid diagnostic test where you have more than one organism growing in the blood culture, how well genotypic or phenotypic tests will detect multiple organisms and give you some actionable results. And the other thing about Accelerate Pheno is the the, the ID panel is actually very robust. This identifies 12 gram-negative pathogens, but based on your local epidemiology, you may have pathogens that are off target. So some of those pathogens that may be off target are things like Stenotrophomonas or Morganella. So part of the performance of the assay is also going to depend on your local epidemiology and your local patterns. But I would say in in summary, we're all excited about Accelerate Pheno. This is a rapid phenotype test. So unlike the genotypic tests, where you generally just use those results to escalate or if you have a very good antibiogram, maybe you can deescalate. But Accelerate Pheno, you're getting MIC results back in as little as seven hours. And usually, as ID clinicians, that's something we feel comfortable uh, in using to deescalate our antibiotics. So this is certainly a powerful tool, and I know it's being used more and more commonly. So hopefully, we'll see some very nice clinical outcomes data and meetings to follow.
0: Yeah, Ryan, I think you bring up such really important points with both of those platforms and, and notably just like understanding the test, number one, understanding who to run the test in, the logistical challenges of that. I know we've implemented some rapid diagnostics here and a fair number of our tests, it's because things get sent in the wrong test tube or at the wrong time, or there's miscommunication with the lab. And, and you never kind of think about these things when you're bringing these platforms in. And so um, there's such a huge role for physicians, pharmacists, microbiologists, everyone to work together, nursing in particular is such a huge player in implementing rapid diagnostics because they're right at the bedside. And working with the microbiology lab as a clinician and understanding these tests is, I think, so crucial and, and will continue to, to shine through in some of these, these papers that are published about these platforms.
1: Yeah, we'd love to plug all these things in and get actionable results, but there's many steps in the process. And so process performance, I think, is something that we should all consider in incorporating these. Yeah. The, f- the final test I want to talk about very quickly is this idea of the BioFire Film Array Pneumonia Panel. Um, to help with the rapid diagnosis of pneumonia. Now this panel is approved in in Europe um, for for the use for patients that have sputum or endotracheal aspirate cultures, and you get turnaround times of, of about an hour. And so this panel is very robust. It has 18 different bacteria, which includes three different atypical bacteria, nine viruses and seven antimicrobial resistance genotypic targets. And so the the, the the challenge is, well, how do you use all that information? So we had a study that was done. Um, this is poster number 1560 that was done in France in a multicenter study. And they got 63 sputum specimens, sputum or endotracheal aspirates from 61 patients. And overall, the performance of the assay looked pretty good. If you grew it in culture, 95% of the time, you were able to find it in, in, the, in the film array panel. And if you didn't grow it in culture, 93% of the time, you didn't find it in the film array as well. But I think the big challenge with this particular test is most likely when you look for multiple targets, you're going to find multiple targets. And that was the key takeaway from this abstract, in fact, that they found uh, a number of different, uh, different targets that were not identified by, by culture alone. So in fact, they had 39 additional species that were identified from 24 of the 63 specimens, and this was mostly uh, Strep pneumo and Haemophilus influenza. Um, So again, if you're looking for more targets, you're most likely to find them. And how reliable is this going to be for sputum and endotracheal samples? And I think that's my big takeaway here is if you have lots of information, lots of targets you're looking for, lots of different resistant determinants, it's unclear what the clinical significance of finding a target is, right? We struggle with this for patients with pneumonia. Is this a colonizing pathogen or an infecting pathogen? Now you have to put in the context, I found something that didn't grow in culture, is that really causing part of the infection here? And maybe I have a different resistance target that I may need to adjust my antimicrobial therapy for. So these panels are now becoming uh, more and more popular. We're going to see more data, and certainly we're going to have to understand more about the clinical significance of them before we can rationally incorporate them into stewardship programs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think stewardship, I know we've said that word a lot, but stewardship was definitely another hot topic and kind of a rapid thing we should go through about ECMID. Um, One session in particular was actually called Hot Topics in Antimicrobial Stewardship, and um, Allison Holmes gave a session about how leadership can influence antimicrobial stewardship. And very briefly, I I loved this session because she asked something I think we're sometimes all afraid to say, and is that, and she said, you know, is cost of therapy the right thing to measure? Probably not. We talk a lot about antibiotic cost as as clinicians and, and how we're kind of gauged on that, and that's really not a good metric. And then in general, what are we measuring when we perform stewardship initiatives, and is it making our patients safer? And, and as we walk through the, with rapid diagnostics and cost justifying these platforms and a lot of other things, these are the important questions to ask. What are we measuring is it making our patients safer. And ultimately, all stewardship initiatives and healthcare outcomes should be gauging patient outcomes. And then kind of this quote and this concept of nobody ever gets credit for fixing problems that don't happen. A lot of good care and a lot of stewardship is implementing these programs that avoid problems, right? And so if you get patients on the right drug faster, you avoid a bad outcome. And that's hard to kind of quantify, but we really need to think about that in our stewardship metrics. Um, and so I thought that session was really interesting kind of on stewardship and leadership. The other very briefly um, session I'll mention was an oral poster, 001 uh, 001- Four, two. and this was called significant change in patients belief and expectations about antibiotic treatment for upper respiratory tract infection as a result of brief educational slideshows delivered immediately prior to general practice consultation so this is kind of like a completely different twist and turn on stewardship presented at ECmid and what these people did is they gave two iPad based slideshows to educate patients on the futility of antibiotic treatment for upper respiratory tract infections and then the substantial side effects of antibiotic exposure. And then they had this kind of like placebo slideshow that other patients that were randomized to the other arm could watch um, about healthy diet and exercise or whatnot. So everyone kind of got an iPad while they were waiting in these urban general practice waiting rooms, one about antibiotic badness and how they don't work for viruses, and one about um, healthy diet and exercise. But everyone's sitting there with an iPad. And they did this during the winter of 2018 for three months. And before and after they watched these slideshows, the patients were asked to rank on a Likert scale their agreement with the statements such as, I think antibiotics are helpful for treatments like cold and flu, and I wish to receive an antibiotic during my visit. And again, this outpatient stewardship concept, I think, will become increasingly important. Um, They had 325 patients And there was no change in perception on this Likert scale in their control group. But in the intervention group, watching the badness antibiotic video, they found that they were significantly more likely to strongly disagree with these statements. So these patients are like, don't give me that antibiotic. Interestingly, they did no intervention with the providers. And so they saw the prescribing of antibiotics didn't change. And so moving forward, leadership and stewardship, what are we measuring interacting with the patient interacting with providers on both levels the psychology behind antibiotic prescribing and stewardship I think these are going to be themes in the future for sure
1: that's really really fascinating how you can adjust the process at many different steps even by a simple intervention that you can put in the waiting room is, is really cool
0: yeah and low cost like engaging to patients I thought it was I thought it was super interesting data
1: really well done all right Aaron let's switch gears here and let's bring this podcast home by talking about some of the new pipeline agents. This is always another popular topic. If you go to ID Week or ECMID, these rooms are jam-packed. We want to hear about the new agents in the pipeline, and ECMID uh, did not disappoint in this regard. So I'm going to kick it off here, and I'm going to talk about Uh and I'll just mention that we're going to try and focus on agents that are closest to being FDA-approved and closest to being available to clinicians, although there is a long list of agents in the pipeline uh, that you can hear about at these meetings. So imipenemrelobactam is obviously a carbapenem, plus relebactam and relebactam is one of these diazo bicyclooctane beta lactamase inhibitors that inhibits very well class A and C beta lactamases it does not inhibit class B metallo lactamases or class D oxacillinases overall there was 14 posters on imipenem relebactam at ECMID most of these were presenting in vitro data, and the in vitro data is, has been presented previously. We know that this drug is going to have activity against CRE, specifically KPC-producing CRE. It's also going to have very good activity against Pseudomonas, which I think is important as we contrast to another agent that's available, Meropenem vaberbactam The vaberbactam isn't adding a lot for Pseudomonas. In this case, Relobactam does appear to add a fair bit for Pseudomonas, and most likely because of its ability to inhibit this derepression of AMPC. The other important uh, imipenem relobactam data point that was presented that I want to mention in passing is, is a, a murine model um, looking at ELF penetration. This is something we're thinking about. Uh, we know about the ceftoltezo ELF stuff. Uh, so now imipenem Relobactam, they showed that Relobactam penetrates the ELF about 43% once you adjust for protein binding. And this was certainly effective to treat both Pseudomonas and Klebsiella uh, in this pneumonia model. So the in vitro data looks great. For imipenemrelobactam, we're still waiting publication of the RESTORE-IMI trial where they evaluated patients with carbapenem-resistant pathogens and compared them to, to to other regimens. So we're waiting to see the clinical data. We're waiting to see what the FDA decides on imipenemrelobactam, but it may not be that far away. Aaron, you want to tell us about another agent that may not be that far away?
0: I I do, Ryan. But first I want to say, I know pseudomonas was your nerd out moment, but I think Emyrel, Miro Weber, Ceftazavi, the role they play in multi-drug resistant pseudomonas, along with Toltezo, I mean, like what a world, right? We have all these drugs now. Um, I think that's going to be really important. I know this is confusing to clinicians. I know we get asked about this all the time with susceptibility testing and what the roles will play. Pseudomonas mechanisms of resistance are so intricate. Um, So love seeing all these drugs in our armamentarium and we'll be excited to kind of see if we can develop treatment pathways for where they fit. Another one we're going to have to fit in there is cefiderocol. So there were 13 posters on cefiderocol, all about the in vitro activity of this agent. So this cefiderocol is essentially Trojan horse ceftazidime, and so it's a siderophore ceftazidime. So it kind of sneaks its way into the organism. Um, Sean Wynn presented an interesting poster. This is poster 1855 of 4,507 meropenem non-susceptible isolates using CLSI breakpoints of Enterobacteriaceae, pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, stenotrophop and Burkholderia. The MIC-90 for the Enterobacteriaceae was four, but looking at Pseudomonas, you get into MIC-90s of one, um, Acinetobacter two, 0.25 for steno, and 0.5 for Burkholderia. So I think the role of this drug for non-fermenters is going to be compelling. Um, Enterobacteriaceae, does it have activity? Absolutely. There was one last call poster I want to mention, which is poster 1853. This poster looked at sephidericol and enterobacteriaceae in vitro data. They had 569 KPC-producing enterobacteriaceae, 345 beta lactamase producers, which included 200 VIM, 130 NDM, and 15 IMP, and then 480 OXA producers, which included a wide variety OXA 48, 23, 24, 40, and 58. And the sephitiracol MIC-90 for these isolates was 4, 4, and 2 milligrams per liter, respectively, which may or may not end up falling into the realm of susceptible, depending on what the breakpoint ends up being for this drug. But it does demonstrate that sephitiracol has a very broad spectrum of activity against many carbapenemases, and then again, an intriguing role in therapy for Acinetobacter, Steno, and Burkholderia.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about cefidricol, Aaron. And you think about the CRE landscape now, we've got a handful of options to treat CRE that are much better than what we were doing. But the idea of having a new AceNetobacter drug and not having to give people colistin, a new steno or Burkholderia drug, this is really going to be a valuable addition to the armamentarium, particularly for centers that are seeing immunosuppressed populations with these highly atypical non-fermenting pathogens that are just very difficult to treat. So lots of optimism about this drug. We'll see again what the FDA decides and and how the clinical data bear out. The CREDIBLE study is another study we're really looking forward to where they enrolled patients with carbapenem-resistant organisms and randomized them to best available therapy. And I think those data will be quite telling for how we ultimately position this agent.
0: Yeah, I agree. Did you ever think you'd be excited about a new steno drug? Like, I'm super excited about it. I'm like, yes, yeah, steno, that's resistant. Let me treat it with cefiderocol. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's uh, you know, It's um, I, so I tell pumped. this story so all the time, and uh, I've started thinking more and more about steno, and, and I have to tell this kind of personal anecdote for a second is I have a son who has red hair and, and really looks nothing like me, and, and we can read into to many of the reasons for that, but, uh, you know, anytime you go somewhere else and you have a son with red hair, you notice everybody else that has red hair. And thinking about Cephidracol and Stenotrophomonas now, every time I see Stenotrophomonas, I think about it and it's on my radar now. And it's one of these pathogens that probably exists in most of our hospitals, but we just don't recognize it as often. So maybe now that we have another treatment alternative to to Trimethoprim, Sulfamethoxazole, uh, Stenol will be something that, uh, that again, we feel more comfortable treating as clinicians. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's move on to antifungals and away from uh, red-haired children and talk about rezifungin. So rezafungin regifun- is an echinocandin, formerly known as CD101, and what's really unique about this antifungal agent is that it has an incredibly long half-life. So long, in fact, that this drug is going to be dosed once weekly, rather than daily, as with the other echinocandins. The in vitro data looks pretty similar to micafungin, and there was a few posters presented at ECMID that I want to highlight. One of which is oral poster number 741, which was presented by my colleagues here at the University of Pittsburgh, our colleagues, I should say, uh, Hong Nguyen and Neil Clancy, where they looked at an intra-abdominal candidiasis model where they compared mycofungin to resifungin, and they used something really cool known as mass spectrometry imaging or MALDI mass spectrometry imaging, where you can really look at the localization of the drug within target organs and around intra-abdominal abscesses. And when you look at these images, you can really see how mycofungin kind of floats around the periphery of these intra abdominal abscesses that are in target organs, but resofungin penetrates very well and gets high concentrations within the abscess where these organisms are living. So it's kind of cool preclinical data. It worked really well in, in the murine model. And there's now been some, some phase two clinical trial data presented called STRIVE, the STRIVE study, which was presented at IC, or ID Week 2018. Um, so Rezafungin is coming, the data look compelling, and this is a once weekly kind of canon to keep on your radar. I do wanna give a brief shout out uh, at ECMID to Canada oris Man, we've heard a lot about Canada oris in the last year and ECMID was, was the same. Lots of information about new epidemiological patterns, new outbreaks, and I just want to highlight the work of one of our colleagues, um, two of our colleagues, Jeff Ryback and Dave Rogers, who have worked very carefully on kind of dissecting the mechanisms of azole resistance in candida auris. They presented a very nice oral abstract to ECMID. It's oral abstract 0173, um, where they did some very sophisticated, nice molecular work, uh, and kudos to them for that. But in the interest of time, I think we need to move on from candida auris and talk about another antifungal agent.
0: Yeah, so talking about antifungals, we have to talk about Fury. So this was another one of the late breaker trials presented um, as we kind of work through these data from drugs that are in phase two or later. Fury, which is a great trial name, by the way, um, is favorable response to oral ibrexafungerp, formerly SCY078, in patients with refractory fungal diseases. And this was an interim analysis by pathogen. So this was particularly candidiasis data that was presented. And this is an ongoing phase three open label study. And by the way, Ryan, I hate you for making me take this part because that was hard to say, but I think I did it.
1: You definitely drew the short straw because I have no idea how to pronounce that drug.
0: I did better with this one than that the staff drug. I, I did bad there. Anyway, so a brexifungrip is a novel IV oral broad-spectrum glycan synthesis inhibitor. So this is the same target as a kind of and it has consequently activity against candida, aspergillus, and pneumocystis, including drug-resistant strains. This trial is enrolling adult patients with proven or probable invasive or severe mucocutaneous candidiasis, and um, importantly, these patients have to be intolerant of or refractory to standard antifungal therapies. And most of the patients enrolled thus far have candida glabrata. They had 20 patients presented at ECMID. 55% of those patients achieved complete or partial response. 30% had maintained stable disease, and then two patients or 10% had progression of disease. One of those cases was indeterminate. So this study's still recruiting. You can search clinicaltrials.gov for FURY. Um, They're trying to get to 60 patients, and we appreciate the authors for kind of presenting the first 20 patients. It's very interesting to think about. And oral, a kind of candy, like, what a world, right? Oral drugs, way to go.
1: Super cool. Let's move on and talk about a new um, beta-lactamase inhibitor. This is another dicyclobioctane uh, beta-lactamase inhibitor known as ETX2514, and this ETX compound is being combined with sulbactam, which we know has some residual activity for acinetobacter because of its ability to bind to penicillin-binding proteins. And really the idea here is that ETX2502514 potentiates the activity of sulbactam because of its activity against inhibiting class D oxicillinase enzymes. And so there was some data presented. The in vitro data looks pretty compelling for ETX2514 Anselbactam against multidrug-resistant acinetobacter. And importantly, this is a drug that's very specifically targeted against acinetobacter. And they presented some phase two studies, uh, some phase two data, which was actually a double-blind randomized controlled trial comparing the safety and efficacy of ETX2514 Anselbactam plus imipenem to imipenem plus placebo for patients with acute pylo or complicated urinary tract infections. And you can find these data on the ECMID website if you take a look for oral poster 0300. In total, they enrolled 80 patients who were randomized two to one to receive ETX-2514 and anselbactam versus placebo, both in which in combination with imipenem. And much what you would like to see in a phase two registry study, there was really no important safety signals. The efficacy was similar. So this is an important drug to keep on your radar. And a reminder then that maybe as all these new agents come to the market, we're getting closer and closer to this idea of having very pathogen-specific drug therapies for multidrug-resistant organisms.
0: That's very interesting, Ryan. Thanks for sharing that. The other study that was presented with some clinical data at ECMID, this is poster 2 to Eight seven. Um, and this was a subgroup analysis of patients in the Revive trials. So the Revive one and Revive two were published in CID and AAC, respectively, in April of 2018. And these trials were looking at Iclaprim versus Vancomycin for patients with acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections. And so Iclaprim is kind of superbactrim or super trimethoprim. It's a dihydrofolate reductase inhibitor. What they did in this trial was they administered an 80-milligram fixed dose every 12 hours compared to vancomycin 15 mg per kg BID, which subsequently adjusted for renal dysfunction. Um, And in the REVIVE trials, it met non-inferiority for skin and soft tissue infection, so that's achieving greater than 20% lesion size reduction from baseline at 48 to 72 hours. Um, In total, in both REVIVE trials, there was 1,198 patients 2% of those patients had bacteremia, so 24 patients, which was 12 in each group, so that worked out nicely. This poster, poster 2287, pooled those patients, so the patients with concomitant bacteremia, and they kind of looked at their outcomes. um, And they found that clinical cure was achieved in 83% of patients in both arms, so 10 out of 12. And so, I mean, very, very small numbers, but it was kind of interesting that they looked at this, you know, what happens with secondary bacteremia, because I think sometimes we get lost in looking at original studies and then comparing it to our patient Notably, though, on June 6th of this year, there was a press release from this company. Um, The FDA response letter to the NDA for this drug actually said they need to go back and do additional clinical trial data. Um, Revive 1 and Revive 2 weren't substantial for approval at this time. There's a little bit of concern for liver toxicity in this drug, and so I'll be interested to see what comes of it. I know the company wanted to study it in pneumonia, et cetera, so um, a lot of question marks surrounding this drug, but at least notable that this bacteremia cohort was, was talked about. At
1: Yeah, I want to keep with the theme of talking about new agents. And I'm going to mention just briefly here, Laflamulin, which was presented, uh, has been presented at ECMID last year, ECMID 2018, in the LEAP1 study, which was an IV to oral step down for community acquired pneumonia compared to moxifloxacin. And then at ID Week 2018, they presented LEAP2, which was exclusively an oral leflamulin study, again, compared to moxifloxacin. Now, the purpose of the presentation at Ecmid uh, 2019, which... Um, which was very important, was a a reanalysis of LEAP2, really looking at some of the safety endpoints, because there was a signal in LEAP2 of higher GI intolerability for leflamulin compared to moxifloxacin. And I think the take-home point of of this poster, which again, you can find on the website and is narrated by one of the authors of the study, um, is this oral poster 1068, is that many of the GI tolerabilities were very mild and had a short duration, a median of only two days. None of the diarrhea or nausea in the study led to study drug discontinuation. And only three patients in the study uh, had drug discontinuation because of vomiting, two in the lifamulin arm and one in the moxifloxacin arm. So again, this drug appears to be pretty safe and effective. This is a five-day treatment for community-acquired pneumonia. And again, something that perhaps we can be on the lookout for later this year.
0: Awesome Ryan, thank you. And then the last drug we want to talk about is Tubypenam. So this is poster 1950. And this is an oral So I got to talk about the cool oral drugs. Thank you for that. Um, But so this poster, this 1950, looked at how they selected the dose for this oral carbapenem for what will subsequently be the phase three trials. And and so basically the conclusion of this poster, I'll I'll give you guys the punchline, is that 600 milligrams every eight hours is going to be the dose. They said that that would achieve greater than 90% probability of target attainment against the wild type distribution of all complicated UTI pathogens they looked pretty much at E. coli and Klebsiella. Um, so we'll see how that plays out moving forward. I think that's amazing. I think we need these options um, for uh, levofloxacin resistant, bactrim resistant, et cetera, like ESBL bugs that we don't, we can't treat outpatient. But again, stewardship implications of an oral carbapenem, we'll see how that plays. The other poster with this drug was poster 1862. And so that's kind of what I just said, but it looked at the in vitro activity of this oral carbapenem against MDR-UTI-causing pathogens from Europe and the United States. Um, The MIC-90 against ESBL and plasmin-mediated AMPC containing Enterobacteriaceae was 0.25 micrograms per mil, so relatively potent in vitro activity. Um, And this was maintained for all enterobacteriaceae, and then specifically for levofloxacin and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole resistant isolates, um, which is what we want, right? We, if we can't use Bactrim, we can't use fluoroquinolones, can't use nitrofurantoin, what are our other oral options for UTIs caused by ESPL producing bugs? Um, the only thing it was resistant against was um, pathogens that contained OXA48, KPC, and then there was one isolate that was also combined with an OMPK35-porin mutation, which was also carbapenem resistant, as we would expect. Also, I think we got through this podcast and only I have mentioned ceftaz, av-bactam, and porin mutations, so you're really rubbing off on me.
1: I think I win that bet. And wow, what a ton of information we presented here today. I mean, we've gotten through a lot of information, and I can promise you, audience, Aaron and I have done our best to be succinct about this and really summarize just some of the high-level science but it speaks to how much data we're really presented. And we're passing back notes back and forth here saying, "Ah, oh, should we stop? We were going way long. Uh, I hope the audience is as hardcore. For the
0: record, I said we should stop because this went too long, which I never do. I talk a lot.
1: And I have confidence that the audience is as hardcore as we are and they're sticking it out to the bitter end. And so Aaron, let's wrap up with this. You went to ECMID, you spend days trudging through the data after the fact. Give me the the, the thing you're taking back to your clinical practice that's going to immediately change the way you're acting as an ID clinical pharmacist.
0: Well, first, Ryan, since we're taking our time here, I just want to mention that I didn't talk about CMV at all in this podcast, which is my favorite infection. And so I do just want to give a shout out to everyone that did amazing CMV research. There are some awesome sessions that I attended that are not available online, and we tried to focus more on what our audience can go home and watch as well, um, if you're so interested. Um, but a lot of data emerging in the your space and in other drugs for CMV therapies. I think CMV is, again, just an underappreciated, very morbid Virus. Um, So there's some data coming out of that, which I will definitely take home and consider. Um, But I guess my biggest takeaway is that I'm kind of on this new mission about educating clinicians, really about the intricacies of dosing, of dose optimization, the interplay of phenotypic and genotypic resistance, what that means for me, what that means for my patient turning infectious diseases into this precision medicine concept, turning antimicrobial therapy into a precision medicine concept. Um, I just think it's so important, and I know it's really complex, but it is the most important thing that we do because it is what we hinge prescribing antibiotics on, and it's how we treat our patients. And if we can't, as the ID specialists that understand these concepts, if we can't explain them to people that are making antibiotic decisions at the bedside and that are prescribing antibiotics overnight when patients come in septic and, and you name it, then what, then what are we doing? Right. And so that's my biggest takeaway is like, man, this is so interesting. There's so much data. There's so many nuances to understand. Um, and, and how do we really now translate it to the care of our patients and how do we empower non-infectious diseases specialists to use these data? So, um, that's really what I've been thinking about since the conference.
1: Yeah, and for me, the biggest surprise was really Camera 2, whoa! That's not what I expected to see whatsoever. I had really convinced myself that combination therapy was the way to go for staph bacteremia. But again, these are why you go to the meetings. These are why you take in the information because it changes the way you think about these things as a clinician. I think the other thing that ECMID really kind of summarizes and epitomizes in this regard is you go to a meeting like this and you're going to be overwhelmed with new agents and new diagnostic tests and new tools in the microbiology lab. And it really is a really fascinating era in which we're practicing where we're going to see an abundance of new drugs come to the market. We have new diagnostic tests to try to identify resistant organisms even quicker or get more rapid molecular results. And this is a lot of moving parts that clinicians are ultimately going to have to put together. So unless you're spending a lot of time thinking about where each one of these drugs fits or how you can use each one of these new molecular platforms or tests, uh, this is going to be a big challenge, not only for us now, but in the years moving forward, deciding where all of these places, all of these new drugs and new tests fit uh, and have a niche within our, our clinical practice is going to be really important so I can't wait to see what the future holds. And, and again, I'm somebody that will be at ECMED again next year, looking forward to doing another podcast like this.
0: Yeah, right. And I think the point with camera two is just, you know, getting, getting minds together, the importance of robust data to drive what we do um, and not making assumptions and, and really working together to to continue to churn out these high quality data. Um, so, so many opportunities. So thank you so much for joining me um, on behalf of all of our listeners and running through some of these ECMID data. I hope you guys have gained an appreciation for what came out of this conference. Again, if you're listening on behalf of board certification, um, you can get BCIDP credit for this podcast by going to the SIDP, or the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists website, and connecting to the link to take assessment questions. If you are not a board-certified pharmacist and listening, just to learn about the conference, thank you so much for joining us, um, and we hope you all have a great day.
1: And now I'm pretty sure the guy running the studio room is going to kick us out, so we better go.
0: Yeah, he definitely (laughs) wants us to close this off, so thank you guys.